Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you now please prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you refresh us and convict us? Would you comfort us with it? And I ask that you would attend to me and keep me in tune with you as I do this work to which you've called me. And I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, as the more uh, seasoned citizens in the room uh, know by experience, and uh, others, the rest of you, will learn later, um, as people approach and begin navigating through the last quarter or so of their lives, there's a growing temptation to live retrospectively. In other words, there's a temptation to live in the present while looking back at the past, trying to determine if um, it's been a life well lived or not. It's often triggered by retirement or maybe the death of a loved one, a spouse, a family member, or maybe a friend. Um, Maybe it's due to a diagnosis of a terminal illness or some other major physical or um, major lifestyle change or changes that's occurred or that have occurred. And it happens because we want the end of our lives to be characterized by feelings of satisfaction and honor and delight rather than disappointment, shame, and regret. We want to know that we've been productive, not unproductive. We want to know or we actually have a desire for peace and uh, for success and fulfillment rather than bitterness and failure and hopelessness. Um, But I describe that retrospective living as a temptation because it's not helpful. Um, It's something we need to fight. As a matter of fact, it can be dangerous. It can be as dangerous as driving down Walton Avenue at noon with your eyes fixed on the rearview mirror. We need to keep our eyes on where we're going, not on where we've been. Because if we keep our eyes on where we've been, it's just an accident waiting to happen. And fortunately for us, our text tonight provides us with an alternative, an alternative to the temptation of living retrospectively. We have before us the answer of living by faith. And you may be wondering why I say that, and Aaron's already kind of uh, clued us in. It's because of, of all the events in Jacob's life to choose from, the author of Hebrews chose this pericope. He chose this passage in chapters 47 and 48 to draw from. Listen again to our New Testament reading. He said, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now we're going to look at how uh, Jacob exhibited a life of faith. But before we do, I thought it would be good for us to remind ourselves of what faith is. 
How do we define it? And, and, and to define it, we need to go back to the beginning of chapter 11 of Hebrews and look at verse 1. Contrary to what many people believe today, faith isn't simply positive thinking. It's not simply optimism. It's not um, a subjective hunch. It's really not a feeling at all. And it doesn't elicit thoughtless or irrational actions. It doesn't involve blind leaps. It doesn't enable us to create new realities. And it absolutely has nothing to do with naming and claiming health, wealth, and prosperity. The writer of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, that means faith is an objective, substantial, and foundational surety and certainty and confidence in God and His Word that, in the words of R. Kent Hughes, makes the future present and the invisible seen. Richard Phillips says, faith makes real to us things that are otherwise unreal to our experience. It presents to our hearts things that cannot be seen with our eyes. So faith is what enables us to see and hear spiritually, and trust that what we've seen and heard spiritually is as true as if we saw or heard it physically. Faith assures us that what is spiritual is is real and guaranteed and permanent, regardless of what our physical or worldly life tells us. And it's so real, in fact, that Although some of the spiritual won't be experienced until the future, it is actually a present reality that we possess now. And we're going to see three, through three things. Three, we're going to see through a request made, a promise remembered, and a blessing given that Jacob was living this exact way by faith. He, wasn't an, uh, he, he, he was an imperfect person. He was also a sinner with flawed character, but he had a grip on God's promises, and he was not going to let go of them. And our call is not to be like him, but to exercise the faith that he exercised. As we move closer to the final days of our lives, we must strive to live by faith, trusting in the promises of God that he's made to us regarding who we are now and the life that is to come. So let's begin with a request made. It's been 17 years since Jacob has been reunited with his family and reunited with his son, uh, Joseph. I'm sorry, since he's been reunited with Joseph and they've, the family has moved to Egypt. And during those 17 years, Moses says that they gained possessions and were fruitful and multiplied. God has been blessing Jacob for these 17 years. And he had, been, he had begun fulfilling the promises that he had made to the family. And, and Jacob, though, has, has also gotten older. Now, he wasn't as old as his grandfather, um, who was 175. He wasn't as old as his father, who was 180. But he's still 147. And being 147, like them, he was old and full of years. And Moses says this, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. 
carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. And there are a couple of things that we need to notice about this. First, notice that Israel or Jacob must die. Just as we've learned back, or just as we learned back in chapter 6, there is no escape from the inevitability of death. And of course, the same remains true for us today. No matter how well we eat, no matter how, supplements, how many supplements we, um, we take, no matter how, how many steps we make or accomplish during the day, or no matter how many chippers or burpees we complete, the truth is it's appointed for man to die once. And secondly, notice that not only must he die, but Jacob was ready to die. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that he no longer wanted to die, but he was ready to die because he was full of hope, and he was resting in the promises that God had made to him and to his father and to his grandfather before him. And the request he made to be buried in Canaan and not Egypt and to lie with his fathers bore witness of this fact. He, he, like his father and grandfather, expected to be gathered to his people. He knew his days of soul journey would be over, and he knew and was anticipating the life to come as a citizen of heaven. But being buried in Canaan was not only a testimony of his own faith in the life to come, it was also a way for him to encourage and strengthen the faith of those who were going to be left behind. It would be a way for him to reinforce and to undergird their faith, right? the faith of the family that was going to be formed into a nation and who was going to dwell in the affliction of Egypt for over 400 years. He wanted them to be reminded over and over and over again that Egypt was not their home. And he was so adamant about it that he asked Joseph to take an oath and to swear that he would bury him in Canaan to honor the request. And if you remember back in chapter 24, we learned that this hand under the thigh thing uh, was a, a means by uh, which it, it really just spoke of the sacredness of the duty that um, Jacob was asking Joseph to fulfill. And Moses said that after Joseph swore to him uh, that Israel bowed, his head upon his bed. Um, and whether he bowed his head over the bed uh, or, or, or over his staff, as it's interpreted in the Greek, the point is that nothing was more fitting for Jacob than to open his mouth in praise and worship to God. Nothing was more fitting than to joyfully acknowledge and to anticipate the life to come because the Lord was going to keep his promises. They believed it. So let me pause here and ask a very simple question. You probably know what it's going to be. And the question is this, are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? For those who have confessed and repented of their sin and turned in faith to Christ, we're not only ready, we are not only ready but we are anticipating, looking forward to and anticipating being gathered to our people. We're looking forward to and anticipating when we will be made perfect in holiness and pass into glory. 
We're looking forward to that day when we will join with more angels than we can count. And we'll, we will be reunited with those who have gone before us and who are already in the presence of our Savior, Mediator, King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, in the words of Richard Phillips, we, like Jacob, may not always live in a way that is consistent with our faith, but we can die exceptionally well. May we resolve to strongly testify of our faith in the Lord in our death, and may we desire in our death to give witness to our faith that will exceed that of our life. Well, at some point after the request that he made, Moses said Jacob became ill. And so Joseph took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and took them to their grandfather. And this in itself was more significant than maybe we realize. This in itself was an act of faith too. Because what was going to happen was his boys were about to be separated from their affluent and prominent position in Egypt. And they were going to be united with the people of God who were going to be despised and afflicted. And yet he did it anyway. And when they arrived at the bedside, Moses said that Jacob mustered as much, as, much energy as he possibly could and sat up so he could talk to them. Look at verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine and Re as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Now, Jacob wasn't living retrospectively. He wasn't uh, looking back to the past and wishing things were now the way they were then. Uh, he wasn't um, looking back and lamenting what had happened or decisions that he had made. He was describing the events that took place on his return to Canaan from Padan Aram because they were representative of his life. They represented a life of faith that, that he had maintained in the midst of the tension that was created between holding on to the promises all the while in the midst of the difficulties and the afflictions and the suffering of his life. Think about this. When, when Jacob encountered the Lord at Luz or Bethel the first time, he showed up with nothing. He was on the run from his brother, and the only thing he had was a staff. When he meets the Lord at Bethel again or Luz again, coming back, he's been in the chaos of Padan Aram with, um, with his then brother-in-law for 20 years. And immediately after he gets back, he loses both his wife and father in death. And now he's recalling all of these events, remembering the promises. 
And what's happening is, what we see going on is, because he's, because he's remembering these promises in Egypt, not the promised land. And so what's he doing? Well, Hebrews eleven thirteen tells us. He was dying in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that he was a stranger and exile on the earth. Again, there's not a, a tone of lament, quite the opposite. He, he, his faith was strong, and he was so firm in that faith that he wanted to pass on the promise and the blessing to his grandsons. And he wasn't alone. Joseph was in full agreement, and we know that because, remember, he named his sons with Hebrew names, and he's brought them to their grandfather to bless him. We're coming to the end of a year, and I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, are ready for 2023 to be over. Um, Just thinking through the different experiences many of you have um, gone through. It's been a difficult year because of repetitive illnesses. Some of you have been struggling with undiagnosed illnesses. Some of you are battling terminal illnesses. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have had major surgeries. Some of you have lost your job. There's been family conflict and relational strain and disappointment. And then we've got to also deal with the chaos of what's going on in the world and then our own economic and social and political issues within our own country. And like Jacob and Joseph, this is all a part of our earthly pilgrimage. It's all part of life of an exile and a sojourner. It's a part of living in a fallen world that's in a land that's not our own. But hear these words of comfort for me and do good. As our text suggests, he says, the sovereign God that we serve is able to bring fruit out of your sufferings. He says He can turn them into the most precious and profound markers of His closeness to you as He walks alongside you in the midst of your darkness. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the the afflictions, the pain of walking in this, this world that is not our own, Stay, keep your grip on the promises of God. Don't let go. Don't let go. Cling to them. Well, finally, in verses 8 to 22, we see a blessing given. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read verses 8 all the way through 22, but I do want to draw your attention to a few things. Actually, I want to draw your attention to eight things that are there. And first, I want you to notice in verse 10, In verse 10, we're told that Jacob is unable to see, and this is interesting because this should take us back to when Isaac was blind and couldn't see, and Jacob used this to his advantage and tricked his father into giving him Esau's rightful blessing. Secondly, notice that this ceremony that took place uh, was open 
and included both brothers, not just one, and there was no trickery involved. Third, this was more than a ceremony of blessing. This was actually an adoption ceremony. The the boys were moving from the status of grandsons of Jacob to his sons. Through the adoption, they would be considered equal with all of Jacob's other sons, which is why they are listed as those who, among those who had received land allotments in Joshua 13. Due to Reuben and Simeon's sin, the firstborn status is moved to Joseph, so his dream was ultimately fulfilled. He's been placed above his brothers, and as the oldest, he's receiving a double blessing or a double portion of the inheritance, but that double portion is going to be experienced through his two sons, who are each going to receive a portion of the land. Fourth, notice this, in verses 13 and 14, when it was time for the actual blessing to be given, Joseph, very naturally, moves Ephraim to his right and Jacob's left and Manasseh to his left and, uh, let's see, Ephraim to his right, Jacob's left, and Manasseh to his left and Jacob's right. Get that right? He's doing that because he wants the oldest to be on Jacob's right hand so he can receive the greater blessing. But unlike Isaac, right, who was tricked, Jacob crosses his arms. So instead of putting his right on Manasseh and his left on Ephraim, he puts his right on Ephraim and his left on Manasseh. Jacob had learned over time that the purposes and promises of God were, were not going to be thwarted and wouldn't fail simply because things were done contrary to human tradition. Fifthly, notice when Joseph objected in verses 17 and 18 and basically told his father that he had gotten it wrong, notice what Jacob says. I know, my son, I know. Over and over again throughout our study, we've, we've seen that God's divine purposes always went out. God's purposes are never thwarted at all. And what He does and how He does it is oftentimes contrary to how we, or, or to what we think should be done and how, it, how we think it should be done. In other words, His will is often contrary to our will and our desires. But the good news is, when He crosses His arms, and we say, you're getting it wrong, He looks at us and says, I know, my son. I know. I know, my daughter. I know. We need to remember that He is always working for His glory and what's ultimately for our good. 
So when our plans don't go the way we think they should go or want them to go or when our prayers aren't answered the way we think they should be answered or want them answered, we should rest in the fact that He is not working arbitrarily. He is not seeking, He's not joyfully seeking to frustrate us. He's working towards something far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. Because His thoughts are not our thoughts, and His ways are not our ways. Sixth, notice in verse 22 that Jacob gave Joseph a sliver of the land of Canaan. And it seems a a, a bit silly to give the guy who reigns over all of Egypt this seemingly small, meaningless piece of land. But it was a way for a father to encourage a son to live by faith and not to hope in the things of the world, but in the things to come. And it would be the place between, it it would be, that, that land would be the place between the land of his two sons in which Joseph would be buried. Again, God working in his midst. Seventh, notice in verse 16, Jacob says, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, the word earth can also be translated land. And and land could, could actually be the better translation, just as it could be a better translation of even uh, what we read of Jesus saying in the Beatitudes, because Jesus is quoting Psalm 3711. Psalm 3711 says, But the meek shall inherit the land, same word, and delight themselves in abundant peace. And I say it could be a better translation because think about it the, the boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, already had, or right, they were going to be great in the land of Egypt. They were going, they they could conquer the earth. They could rule the earth as as Egyptians, whose father was Joseph. They were set up for earthly greatness. But Jacob was not interested in their earthly greatness. Jacob was interested in their greatness in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. But to be great in the promised land, what were they going to have to do? They were going to have to receive their inheritance and their blessing with meekness. No matter how big or small it may be. Brothers and sisters, we often strive for earthly greatness, do we not? We we work ourselves sometimes to the point of exhaustion just to be great in the eyes of the world in various ways. But our goal should be to Be great in the land of God's kingdom instead of the world. Again, listen to Dr. Duguid. This quote is longer than I usually like to read, but it's well worth it. Every once in a while I run across these and they say it better than I ever could and I'm going to read it. He says this, what does it mean to be great in God's kingdom? What Jesus says is very different from growing great in the kingdom of this world. Growing great in God's kingdom means being poor and needy. It means becoming a servant. It means taking up your cross and striving to be content as your life is increasingly conformed to the cruciform pattern of the life of Christ. 
Greatness in the land means growing in meekness, not self-assertiveness. It means learning how to mourn and moving towards people who are suffering, not learning to evade suffering from ourselves or in the lives of others. Greatness in the land means loving and pursuing peace, which is usually far more costly than seeking to get our own way. Sometimes being great in the land means being persecuted, abandoned, or left alone by those around us. None of us naturally desire such greatness. So much of the long, slow, hard work of discipleship that God is engaged in throughout our lives involves retraining our appetites, retraining our desires away from the superficial things of this world that so easily attract our gaze, and refocusing them on the lasting treasures that are found only in Him. That's why I read it. Beloved, what greatness are you striving for? And to what greatness are we pointing our children? Finally, in verses 15 and 16, Jacob said, God had been his shepherd all his life and had redeemed him from all evil. And most believe that He's confirming what we learned back in chapter 32 and that the man he was wrestling with was the pre-incarnate Christ. And over the course of his life, Jacob had come to know more fully the character of his God who was not only with him but was for him. The Lord had protected him. Not that the Lord had kept him away from any pain or affliction or suffering. We know that's not true. But he had worked all things worked all things together for his good. Jacob's life had not been fruitless. It had not been wasted. The Lord had led him. The Lord had walked alongside him. The Lord had come along behind him. If we were to use David's words from one, Psalm 139, the Lord had hemmed him in. Jacob Jacob knew he had, in, in using the words from Psalm 23, he had led him, God had led Jacob to green pastures. He had led Jacob to quiet, still waters. He had, led, he had led Jacob through the valley of the shadow of death. He had restored his soul. And Jacob knew that his cup overflowed. And brothers and sisters, we also understand the character of Jacob's God because he's our God as well. By faith, we are spiritual descendants of Jacob. And we can testify even more of the character of God who is our faithful shepherd. He has redeemed us from all evil. We've been rescued by the incarnate Christ whose birthday we celebrate this month. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary was our substitute he who, was, he who died and was buried, right? he was crucified, died, and was buried. And he overcame our evil. He paid the debt of our sin that we owed. He who rose again three days later, right? he, overcome, he overcame our final enemy of death. And he who ascended into heaven is there even now currently interceding for us at the throne of grace as our advocate. 
And he's hemming us in by the Spirit. And we've been given a gift of faith, which enables us to be sure of what we hope for and to see the invisible. Things like his return and our own resurrection and the glorification of our bodies and the day when there will not only be an absence of evil, pain, suffering, and affliction, but there will be the impossibility of evil, pain, suffering, and affliction. And of course, we have the assurance of our faith becoming sight and us seeing our Savior face to face. Thanks be to God. Beloved, we may resist, um, or may we not, may we resist living life retrospectively and live a life by faith. May we keep our eyes on what's before us rather than what's behind us or even what's currently going on around us. May we live in light of the fact that the spiritual world is real and guaranteed and permanent. May we not only live in light of who we are, but in light of the fact that our future is a present reality because of Christ and our union with Him. Again, thanks be to God. Let's pray.